Welcome to the Let's Think About That podcast, where we don't just react. We'll break it down and think about it. We're going to talk news, the law, sports, whatever we're thinking about. We're your host, Ed Yeager and Lee Allen. Lee, how are you, my friend? I'm doing well, Ed. I hope you are. I am doing pretty well. You know, uh, we were a little delayed this week because we had a hurricane come through the southeast, but uh, I think we're doing okay. As breaking news is that uh, the president came out and made this announcement. When I announced our drawdown in April, I said we would be uh, out by September, and we're on track to meet that target. <clears throat> Excuse me. Our military mission in Afghanistan will conclude on August 31st. Basically, all combat troops will be out of Afghanistan by um, August 31st instead of September 11th. And I have to tell you, I have mixed feelings about that. But what do you think about that? Given where uh, or given the manner in which we have engaged the bad guys, if you will, in Afghanistan, um, it's probably a good thing. If we've been there 20 years and it'll be 20 years in October and we haven't gotten it done, we're not going to get it done. And the political will to fight properly or appropriately is apparently just not there. Um, and so I, I'm in favor of bringing them home. I, I, I think we've, we've spent enough uh, blood and treasure for other people's problems and other people's countries. And, you know, I think what we need to do is, is make it known that if, if something happens uh, to our people or our country in the future and it's tied to Afghanistan, we're coming back and God help them. Um, and other than that, let them get on with their own corrupt system and do whatever it is they want to do. Well, and in fact, Biden said we're not there to nation build. I think that is what we have have done, which is part of my ambivalence about this, yeah. because I think we had no choice but to go there after we were attacked of 9-11. That's right. I think we took down the Taliban government, which was only recognized by a couple of countries in the world, but was a safe haven for bin Laden and al-Qaeda. Mm-hmm. And then we eventually got bin Laden. You know, it's just I think it's troubling that after so many years that the Afghan government and the Afghan security forces haven't been able to step up to control the security situation within the country. And there's just on the horizon this civil war looming, which will hurt so many innocent people. And it's just a shame. And I know it's not our fault, but it's, it's just terrible that they've been a- unable to step up to the task. That's right. It's it's it is a it is a tragedy, but it's their problem and they need to fix it. And until they own it, they're not going to even try. And they may not try even when they own it, but they're certainly not going to try when they don't own it. And I think you're right. I think we needed to go. And, you know, I guess I'm a little bit um, of a Luddite in the sense that I subscribe to the, you know, the Roman school of how you deal with stuff like that. And you you, you roll up and you say, you can surrender or we'll kill every one of you and we'll salt the earth. And, you know, if you screw around with us again, we're coming back and God help you when we do. Um, and and uh, there certainly is not the political will for that in the day and age of the Internet and television and the 24-hour news cycle. Um, but, uh, you know, it's a good thing I wasn't president on September the 11th, 2001, because I flattened everything from the Jordan River to the Chinese border. By lunchtime, you know, we've kind of been fiddle farting around over there for 20 years with one hand tied behind our back, begging uh, the Karzai government and others to do the right thing and paying them out out the wazoo and giving them all sorts of 
cash considerations and property and training and you name it. And no one over there is interested in, in meeting us anywhere close to halfway. So I, I think it's probably a necessary step. I, I'm give the devil his due. I think the president was right when he said, you know, we're not going to do nation building. That's not what we're for. No, he probably will change his mind. I saw some speculation earlier uh, today that we might send troops to Haiti in light of the assassination there, and that's exactly what that would be. But at least that's in our own hemisphere, and and can argue that we have some interest there. But uh, I also thought, and I wanted to get your take on this, Ed, I, I thought that the leaving in the middle of the night and just leaving everything there was probably a stroke of genius, given the corruption that exists within the Afghan government and the uh, security forces there. Had it had our uh, had our national command authority and, and others, whoever made made it known to anyone in the allies uh, that we have there uh, in the Afghan security forces that we were leaving. I have no doubt we would have been attacked um, as we were doing so. And, I mean, it's unfortunate that we had to do it in that fashion, but I thought it was the right thing to do. And um, the fact that they kept it a secret is, in my opinion, a good thing and and should be uh, recognized as such. What are your thoughts? Well, that was my initial reaction, that it was probably due to the security situation on the ground, and it made more sense than to create targets on your way out. Mm -hmm. Uh, My concern, though, is, is... Pulling, you know, I don't know where the September 11th deadline came from or what the purpose was of advancing it to August 31st. But my concern is when the president comes up and says we're still working on diplomatic solutions. Well, I I don't see that you have any leverage for those. No, you don't. And then you're still working on this issue of evacuating our friends, our interpreters, people who were valuable to our troops on the ground. Why didn't you resolve that before pulling out? Yeah. I agree with that totally. And I also don't know that I would, I don't think it was necessarily the right thing to do to t- say we're going to leave by this date, whatever it may have been. I, I would have preferred to see him, uh, him being the president, do it not unlike George W. Bush did it with regard to the turnover in Iraq, where, okay, you pick a date and then you do it before that and sort of catch the opposition or any potential enemies and, and terrorists flat footed with that. And, um, and, and accomplish it sort of quickly without anybody realizing that it's happening. Um, I, I think it is critical for future cooperation that we may need, and we will need it because we will be in a shooting war, for lack of a better word, uh, in the future. We've got to get those people that, that helped us, that put their lives on the line and interpreted and, and, and that kind of thing. We've got to get them out. Um, and I don't want to see a helicopter on the embassy uh as, as the last folks jump on um like like happened in uh, Saigon in 1975 we don't need that our our status in the world and our, our we just that would not be good uh, well I'll come back to that helicopter comment in a moment because I think it's very valid but just with respect to the interpreters one thing that really rubbed me the wrong way today was to hear Biden say in response to a question, why aren't they coming to America? The law doesn't allow it. Why can't the U.S. evacuate these Afghan translators to the United States to await their visa processing as some immigrants at the southern border because have been allowed to do? Because the law doesn't allow that to happen. And, and that's and, why we're asking the Congress to consider changing the law. 
that uh, that wasn't very palatable. I, I'm not an immigration lawyer, but I'm satisfied that there's a there's a, a provision in the law that would allow people that put their lives on the line in combat for us to come to this country legally. Yeah, I agree. And, and to the comment about the helicopter on the roof in Vietnam, uh, Biden got testy when someone suggested this was like Vietnam. Oh, really? Some Vietnamese veterans see echoes of their experience in this withdrawal in Afghanistan. Do you see any parallels between this withdrawal and what happened in Vietnam with some people feeling? None whatsoever. Zero. What you had is you had entire brigades breaking through the gates of our embassy. Six, if I'm not mistaken. The Taliban is not the the North Vietnamese army. They're They're not remotely comparable in terms of capability. There's going to be no circumstance where you see people being lifted off the roof of a embassy in the, of the United States from Afghanistan. It is not at all comfortable. That's what he sounded like when that question came up. Um, but I, I think there are two sides and there are two ways that this might play out. First, if we don't protect more of our friends, it will be like Vietnam, where we basically sold out the allies that we had on the ground there. But I. On the other side of the equation, I think it's different from Vietnam because of the manner in which we're leaving. And I've seen some some reports that likened it to the British Empire being destroyed on the way out of Afghanistan or the Soviets pulling out. Well, I think it's very different. I mean, yeah. the British were basically slaughtered trying to get out the Khyber Pass. You know, one or two survived and that was it. The Soviets were bleeding. We're not in that position. It's not a great security situation, but it's a lot more stable than it was a few years ago. Right. And I think I saw the other day where we haven't had a combat death in Afghanistan for maybe a year. Yeah, I knew it had been an extended time. Don't quote me on the year, but it's a long time. And it was frankly surprising to me that it had been that long. So we're in a different situation. We're choosing the date that we're leaving. We're choosing the method that we're leaving by. Um, The concern is about what we're leaving behind. Absolutely. So that's uh, that's the breaking news today. The other issue, which has been on a uh, slow burn recently, is is just the escalating crime rate across the country. Are you uh, following that? I am. Uh, I uh, particularly uh, poignant, I thought, or pithy, or whatever adjective you like, was the number of people that were shot in Chicago over the Fourth of July holiday weekend. A um, hundred people were shot, 17 died every yeah. weekend. And I think there were three or four of those were children under the age of 10. Um, it's, it's tragic. Um, and it is, in my mind, uh, completely a function of lax criminal justice uh, efforts on the part of liberal politicians in those in those areas. They, they're hamstringing our law enforcement and George Soros has backed a number of ultra-liberal candidates for district attorney in those places and elect, gotten a lot of them elected, uh, and they are simply not prosecuting crimes. And it's most crimes at all. I mean, I'm you know they just they won't. They, and in those states, apparently, North Carolina is a uh, an anomaly in that uh, the district attorney is the one that makes the final decision on how to charge and when to charge and whether to charge. And they're just declining to prosecute and charge folks. Um, I, I'm sure you saw Target has closed, I think it was six stores in San Francisco because of shoplifting. 
Um, cops don't arrest. They don't come. They don't, you know, and, and they just, they said, we're not going to do this. Uh, we can't afford it. Um, and they closed and not stores. only Target, I think Walgreens has closed a number of stores. CVS has closed a number of stores. And in some of the worst neighborhoods, too. That's right, where people need access to pharmaceuticals and, and things of that nature. And it's it's not like those folks have the ability to jump in the car and drive 30 or 40 minutes to to get the you know the, the drugs or the medicine or whatever it is that they may need. Um, and, I mean, I know that locally um, in an area that's it's not necessarily a crime problem, it's a poverty problem, but there's an area across the river where there are no drugstores. Uh, it's a problem for people, and it's a poor area, and they don't have cars, and it's not it's outside the city limits, so it's not served by the municipal mass transit. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's, it's an issue, and they're, they're trying to deal with it. But you have to, you know, the, the, the drug companies or the drugstore companies, they got to be able to make a profit in order to come and, and invest the kind of money it would take to open a drugstore. And that's what's going to happen. It's happening in, in these big cities. And, and you're looking, particularly there, you're looking at urban blight from the late 60s, early 70s all over again. To that effect, that's an issue here in what they call food deserts, where there yes. are no grocery stores. But there's a reason why large grocery store chains don't want to go into certain areas. It's because it's not economical, because they have to deal with crime issues, because they have to deal with shoplifting. And then they don't have the customer base also. It's an ongoing problem, and with with liberal politicians, there are cities where they are simply saying, we're not going to prosecute certain crimes, whether it's prostitution, low-level drug offenses, other things like that. They're just choosing not to even bother with those. And, you know, criminals are smart. They understand that. They talk. They know that. And, and it's it's an incentive to, con- to commit these acts. Um, I'm sure you saw the video of... The Neiman Marcus store uh, that, that was uh, hit the internet this week. I mean, 20, 30 people run out of Neiman Marcus in broad daylight with designer handbags. I think is is what it was um, uh, that they'd stolen and shoplifted, and they're you know just it's a free for all, and and nobody's doing anything about it. Getaway cars outside waiting. That's right. For them. And and in a moment we'll talk about how left-wing politicians are trying to change this from a crime problem into a gun problem. But a couple of sound clips first, because when you talk about left-wing politicians, Cuomo comes to mind first in New York. And just within the last couple of days, he made this statement that this is actually a public health emergency. We went from one epidemic to another epidemic. We went from COVID to the epidemic of gun violence. And I want the people of the state to understand that. And I want them to respond to the emergency for the way it is. So today, first state in the nation is going to declare a disaster emergency on gun violence. And then the GOP of New York responded to what the real problem is and why they're not enforcing the law. We have a state of emergency in New York, all right. It's called one-party Democrat. What on earth did Andrew Cuomo think would happen when he let all the dangerous criminals back into the streets? The public safety crisis we are facing is a direct result of Democrat policies that have been focused on handcuffing police and not criminals. Our law enforcement has been villainized. Police budgets have been gutted, including more than $1 billion from the NYPD alone. Our brave heroes are retiring the force in record numbers. Simultaneously, Democrats gave the biggest gift to criminals by eliminating cash bail. 
Every criminal in New York knows that they have free reign on our streets and they'll walk right out the door of a police station with a desk appearance ticket that they never will show up for. And then along the same lines, here's a short clip from an alderman in the city of Chicago who says this isn't a gun problem, but it's a people problem. Chicago and the state of Illinois have the strictest gun laws. Uh, our, our, it's a t- statistical fact that the bulk of our, our guns, our illegal guns, come from our, our border uh, states. And not a single one of our border states or any of them combined have anywhere near 5,800 people shot in the last 17 months. Right. What, what politics won't tell you is we, we have a human problem. We have a people problem right here. There's little accountability. Politicians won't blame families for raising their kids. The gangs are raising their kids right now. We have over 17 or 117,000 gang members. That's your problem. I saw this uh, some time ago back, I think it was in 2019. No, it was in 2019. And the United States at that point was third in murders throughout the world. If you remove the the number of murders from Chicago, Detroit, Washington, D.C., St. Louis, and New Orleans, the United States would then be 189th out of 193 countries in the world in terms of murders. That is an amazing statistic. And every one of those cities is has two things in common, very strict gun laws and Democrat control. Democrat mayors, Democrat city council. It's not rocket science. If 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 you're gonna if you're gonna make crime pay, people are gonna commit crimes. It's just that simple. And you know we don't like to talk about in in modern twenty twenty one America the deterrent effect of law and order and, and strict prosecution and, and holding folks accountable, but it's reality. And it, it doesn't necessarily deter uh, what I like to call crimes of uh, emotion, you know, hot blood. You know, somebody, particularly, you know, most murders are between people who know each other and, and maybe even related. Somebody gets angry for whatever reason, loses their temper, or does something. Deterrence doesn't necessarily fix that or, or affect that as much, but it does affect and it does deter things that people have to think about, like the Neiman Marcus situation. You know, that those are not spontaneous it acts, not not that number at the same time with a getaway car outside. But if those folks know they're going to be arrested, and if they get arrested, they're going to be prosecuted to the full extent of the law, and then when they're prosecuted, they're punished um, and not given, you know, a slap on the wrist and, and, and a pat on the head and a lollipop and sent on their way, the number will drop. Um the cost of business will, the cost of doing business will make it unpalatable for the, a good portion of the criminal element. I mean, well, and it took me about five minutes to find these headlines, but just to show you the scope of this, Chicago, we mentioned it, 100 shots, 17 died. The Atlanta Journal this week, Atlanta homicides are up nearly 60% in 2021. Dallas Morning News, five dead, more than 20 wounded in Fourth of July shootings in Dallas, Fort Worth. Los Angeles Times. L.A. reels from alarming spike in killing shootings and fear of violent summer. WUSA9.com, which is uh, covering Northern Virginia, 102% increase in carjackings in Prince George's County. And here in Charlotte, a 27% increase in shootings into occupied homes and cars in 2021 so far. It's not just murders. It's all types of crimes. And one thing that you're seeing is that it's being called a gun problem. I would suggest it's a crime problem, not a gun problem. 
But the way you deal with that is you start arresting people and you prosecute them to the maximum extent of the law. Right. There are plenty of, of gun laws on the books. And, you know, murder's a crime. Robbery's a crime. Larceny's a crime. You know, those kinds of things can be prosecuted and it, you don't need an additional lower level felony related to outlawing a gun when the laws are on the books. There's teeth there. It's just a matter of using them. The notion, if you will, of it's a gun problem is is really a, a lack of, I mean, there's no logic to that. You know, I'm overweight. Is it the forks problem? No, it's my problem. Um, and and, and I think that is, is, it's almost elementary. It's a silly, specious argument. And I don't think it resonates with the American people, at least as a whole. The body politic does not seem to be in favor of gun control like uh, the Democrat Party and its base seems to want, or not seems, wants. Unless the court, the, the filibuster goes away and the court gets packed, the Democrats and the gun lobby uh, can't get around Heller. You know, thank God. Um, and Heller is a Supreme Court decision from what's the most recent major uh, Second Amendment Supreme Court decision. I guess it's probably 10 years old at this point, but it involved a case out of the District of Columbia and the uh, Supreme Court by one vote, I believe, yeah, affirmed the individual right of self-defense or individual right of possession of a firearm for self-defense. Our founding fathers, when they wrote the Second Amendment, they hadn't just finished a hunting trip. You know, th this is not about hunting firearms. This is about firearms for defense, either against criminals or against tyrannical government. Not that we're advocating for uh, for any sort of uh, violence against the government, but that's the purpose of the Second Amendment, like it or not. And the first thing that Mao, Hitler, Pol Pot, and any number of other dictators do when they take uh, Castro, when they take power, is they confiscate the guns because it's easier to subjugate an unarmed populace. Beto O'Rourke, bless his heart, he told the truth. I'm going to get your AR-15. He said the quiet part out loud. Um, that's exactly right. And, I mean, that's that's scary. Curdle the milk kind of scary to folks who appreciate the freedoms that we have and, and, and appreciate the freedom to own a firearm and possess a firearm. And but if you, if you read the founders, if you read the founding documents, if you read the Federalist Papers, one of the things the founders all believed were that rights don't flow from the government. They're natural natural rights. You'll hear that expression. And they believe the most fundamental of that was the right to defend yourself, your home, and your property, and your family. That's exactly right. I mean, they're God-given rights. And it, it, the Constitution does not limit individuals. It limits government's reach against individuals. And we've lost, uh, in, in a lot of ways, or maybe a, a lot of people have lost sight of that. Um you know, and then we have the, the, the 10th and the 11th Amendments, the Forgotten Amendments, I think you called them last week. Um, but that's important, and it's critical to maintaining our freedom. You know, the, the, we tell the government, you know, they work for us. They do what we say. We don't do what they say. Now, we collectively pass laws through our representatives, uh, and in that sense, I guess we do what, what 
they say, but they speak for us, not the other way around. And I, I, I'm troubled by this notion that we need the, the, the great father in Washington, D.C. to tell us all what to do and save us from ourselves. When you hear a politician that talks about you have a right to something, whether that's health care, housing, medical assistance, medical care, whatever it may be, they are misdefining what rights are under the Constitution. Under the Constitution, rights tell you what the government can't do to you. They don't tell you what the government is going to give to you. That is so well put. I mean, that, that we could do a whole show, and we probably should, on that very thought alone. I mean, that's just, that's it in a nutshell. But put a you know, star then, beside that because if 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 we could fix that, we, we don't have to have a show anymore. We fixed everything. But you know, you made a good point earlier that murder, uh, larceny, all of the crimes that you named, they're far more serious than some minor new gun regulation. However, I would say that also most of the people who are using guns probably have felony records, and it's a pretty easy hit for the uh, the prosecutors to go out and take them off the street with a felon in possession of a firearm charge. That's been done for years, or it was done years ago. It may not be done as much now through Project Exile in a number of cities, and it brought crime rates down across the country. Significantly. And it not only does it violate state law, there are federal statutes on the book. Uh, and, 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 you know, the feds can swoop in, and they used to do it from time to time, when a felon would get caught, a previously convicted felon would be caught with a firearm, and they would take that case federally, and, you know, people get popped in federal court for that, and they go spend 10 or 15 years in the federal penitentiary, and they're not committing any more crimes uh, during that period of time. And that's what we need, is get these people off the street. Well, you know, you mentioned the uh, Soros-backed prosecutors. We've talked about liberal politicians. Uh, I know you've... uh, I know you used to be a prosecutor at some point in your career. Uh, let me ask you this. What do you think about bail reform? Well, I think that um, from an academic standpoint, there's a certain benefit or logic or uh, attractiveness to this notion that a poor person charged with a crime should not sit in jail pending trial simply because he or she can't make what would be the typical bail amount that someone of more means would make no problem. You know, that, that seems to be, to me anyway, to, that there's a certain logic to that. However, this notion that we're not going to have cash bail at all um, has resulted in a, a, a couple of things. From a, an individual standpoint, it sends the message to folks that this is not that big a deal. Um, you know, show up if you want to. They're literally arrested, processed, and right back on the street, that sends a message overall, I think, as well, or generally, uh, that it's not, it's not serious, it's not something we're going to care about or worry too much about, and it's a carte blanche, um, go back and continue your criminal ways. Uh, and so I, I think that it's one of these things where it sounds good in theory, but the unintended consequences of it are disastrous. And, you know, when the purpose of bail, as you know, uh, is to ensure um, th- th- that the person charged with a crime will show up in court to answer whatever charges are ultimately made. 
but unfortunately, you've also got to consider in arriving at a proper uh, a proper set of pretrial release conditions, including posting property or paying a bondsman. Um, public safety is a part of that. Uh, and if people are showing that they're going to continue to commit crimes, then the bail needs to reflect that because society doesn't need people committing crimes when they're charged and facing you know, pending charges over and over and over again. And that's what's happening. And so I, I think that, as I said, it's a good idea in theory, perhaps, but practically it's it's a it's a train wreck. Well, the other part of this, and I, I don't want to, I don't want to leave this subject without mentioning it. But you know, I think that watching cities burn in most of 2020, throughout the summer and the fall, where there were mass protests in the street, where police were just um, absolutely derided by so many in power, and the the calls were to defund the police and. That's a separate topic we, we could talk about, but just overall, all of these factors have decreased respect for law and order and law enforcement in general. They have. And, and you know, uh, you're exactly right. But circling back to the bail issue, I think that the war on drugs, and I, I don't know if we've touched on this in the past, I, I, I don't think we have, but the war on drugs, to my mind, is sort of like the war in Vietnam. And that is, it was a good idea. Uh, it was admirable. It was moral. Um, it was, in my opinion, the right thing to do. The problem was in the is in the execution of of either. It wasn't done right. You know what what happened in the in the war on crime. I mean, the war on drugs is, you know, certain segments of our society got pounded, and certain segments were sort of allowed to do, to do what they needed, and it became um, uh, people just decided, generally speaking, that it was something that was going to happen. Um, and, and now we have this, this treadmill where we arrest folks and send them to prison, put them on probation, generate money for the system just to go out and investigate more drug crimes. And we're not, we do have, we've lost, we've lost the war on drugs. And if we would focus on the violent crimes, whether they're related to the war on drugs or not, and, you know, I, I think there's a difference in a bail situation for somebody who's 20 years old with, without much of a record, uh, who's charged with, you know, possession of, of, of cocaine, um, not an amount or, or package so as to be indicative of, of a sale, but just possession of cocaine. I think that's one thing, uh, with regard to maybe not having a cash bail, but, you know, when you're, when you're using a gun, when you're hurting people, or as my old boss used to say, when the blood flows, you know, that's a different, that's a different issue. And, and that's where the focus needs to be. And my criticism of prosecutors, not just the George Soros liberal ones, but all of, of prosecutors in general is, you know, you, you focus on the serious cases and the, mundane, the weak cases, they take care of themselves. But if you, if you try the serious cases, the good cases, um, like they're supposed to be tried, you take the criminals off the street and you send a message to the populace. And, and that's not happening. I, I think in, in a lot of places, it's a fairly limited number of criminals that you need to take off the street oh, before sure. you can really materially impact the crime rate. That's right. And they'll go someplace else. The ones that don't go get off the street. And, and it's, there's a lot of common sense to to criminal uh, criminal justice issues that in our 
expert ways in 2021. We've, we've, we, we, we pretend are um, old-fashioned. They are, um, you know, exorbitant. They are fascist. They are uh, unfair and so forth. But they work, and there's a reason for them, and they're needed in a lot of ways. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not room for improvement in a lot of ways within the criminal justice system in addition to those things. And, you know, um, certainly folks need to be treated similarly. Situated folks need to be treated similarly. But but criminals, whatever they are, whoever they are, whatever they look like, however much money they have, they need to be prosecuted when they when it's serious. And then when it's not, they need to be dealt with appropriately. And, and that involves... Judgment, discretion, and so forth. But if we focus on the violence, we, we we could we could solve a lot of this. Well, I think that's that's where we need to be focusing now on this uptick in violence, whether it's whether it's shooting, whether it's murders, whether it's carjackings, larceny from stores, whatever is happening. People need to feel safe in their cities. They need to feel safe in their neighborhoods. Yeah, d- and and uh, the Biden administration f- attempt to turn this into a gun issue and I guess take advantage of the situation isn't helping. No. Clearly, this has a Democrat's attention because it's going to be reflected in poll numbers if it isn't already. That's the only reason that's this is getting attention now. This week, the uh, juveniles, at least one of whom, uh, or at least one of the juveniles who uh, carjacked the man in D.C., the Pakistani immigrant uh, businessman, and he ended up getting killed because he tried to to stop them from driving off in his car, and there, there was a wreck, and he died. Uh, the, one of the juveniles was sentenced to a juvenile a term in juvenile uh, in the juvenile justice system in D.C. I think it's going to boil down to about two years. First of all, that's one issue. I mean, two years for a man's life. Secondly, the Washington Post headline uh, about that was that the carjacker, the, 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 one of the juveniles who carjacked an Uber driver was sentenced. Not that the man died, not that it was murder, um, and I think it was second-degree murder, but it might have been manslaughter. But, I mean, nothing about the reality of the situation that this man lost his life trying to stop someone from stealing his car was reflected in the Washington Post headline. And that's, in my mind, that's a, that's a, that's a, a nice portrait of the dichotomy that we have with regard to the crime problem. You know, the obvious is, is obscured. It's spun in ways that, that aren't exactly the truth, perhaps. Um, and, you know, the poor people, the people that have to deal with this every day, they know the reality of it. They live it. They're the ones that are scared to come out of their house. You know, that's how Rudy Giuliani got elected mayor of, De- of New York. That's how Richard Nixon beat uh, Hubert Humphrey in 1968, was running on crime, crime, crime. We're going to do something about crime. People are scared, and it resonates. And it resonates across races, across socioeconomic status. It, it, you know, People want to be safe and secure in their homes, their businesses, their neighborhoods, and their schools. And when they're not, it's, it's, it's a problem for whoever is in power that is not fighting that. Yeah, you don't want to be on the wrong side of this issue. And, you know, when we started uh, talking about whether we were going to discuss crime, I think you said this might be a five-part series. 
And I kind of feel like we barely scratched the surface here. There's so many issues. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think it'll be the last time we talk about no, it. Because I think it's just not, it's not going away. And there aren't any, I don't see anyone out there who's making the effort to really do something serious to solve the crime problem. No, and if I were a Democrat politician, and in, in particularly in one of these blue cities, a, a Democrat who is pro-law enforcement, law and order, could really, really, really rocket to the front of the Democrat Party right now because the, the base and the rank-and-file politicians are defund the police, bail reform, prison reform. We need to do things to keep people out of prison and all that. And and it's it seems to me that the opposite is is, the, is what we need to do. Well, you know, that's an interesting point. But, you know, I don't know how that person would rocket to the head of the party because I don't know who's left in the Democrat Party that's going to support someone like that. Well, I don't know that they even would. even Eric Adams, who apparently has won the primary for the Democrat primary for mayor of New York. What percentage did he win with? It was pretty slight. It was, but but there, there were a number of candidates. But I'm not saying they necessarily get ahead via Democrat voters. I think they get ahead via voters. I mean, it, 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 you need independence and Republicans, right? You, you sort of need to be the, the 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 Donald Trump of the Democrat Party. That is to say, you don't want the um, the establishment of your party's support. You want to run against that to some extent. And you want to say, I'm appealing to everyone, and here's what we need to do. And sort of the Kennedy Democrat, the uh, you know the old school liberals, um, and and I think you know. It, I guess the problem would be a Democrat primary for that person, uh, but certainly in places where there's an, either an open primary or you don't need a primary, I do think that you know elected office could be had by by such a such candidates pretty pretty handily or pretty pretty easily just because of the the notoriety and the publicity that such an effort would 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 get, uh, and I do think it would resonate with people and. And that's one of those issues, uh, you know, sort of like when Clinton ran in 92, it's the economy, stupid. I think in 2022 saying it's it's the crime, it's safety, stupid, will resonate with a lot of folks. And, it, and, and you may even get, you know, the right candidate might even get a, a number of crossover votes if, if you, you know, package it right and say the right things at the right time. I don't know. I think this is a purely academic discussion because I don't see anyone out there who could do that. Or, or would do that. No. You know? But if I were a young Democrat looking to make my name, I would do it. But I'm not young, and I'm not a Democrat, and I'm not looking to make my name. You, on the other hand. Hey, don't point fingers. <laughs> well, so we'll, we'll continue to look at what goes on in the uh, in the criminal justice system. What's on your radar for the next week? Well, in addition to uh, to the crime thing, and I, I, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to lose sight of that. I, I think there are, are several things we need to watch. Um, I'll sort of start with what's um, uh, what may be fun is, uh, you know, we, uh, next Tuesday we have a Major League All Star Game. This year, uh, my 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 boys told me that um, the, they will not be wearing their regular uniforms. They will be wearing an American League uniform or a National League uniform and not their team uniforms. I don't like that, but it's been done before. Um, so uh, I probably will uh, will watch anyway. 
uh, and not uh, not not choose that hill to die on. And well, the, the interesting story out of the All Star Game isn't just the uniforms, but this guy who is going to play as both a pitcher and a first baseman. It, it, exactly, and is that fascinating or what? I mean, he leads the major leagues in home runs. At one time, he was close to leading in ERA. I don't know if he still is. I watched him maybe Saturday night, maybe Friday night. I don't remember which, against the Orioles. Saw him hit a home run. Um, It is mind-boggling that one individual could have that kind of talent. And and I'm I'm, I'm glad to see that – uh, the the Angels manager and the um, the Rays manager, the Rays manager being the the manager of the American League All Star team, made it actually put him on the roster. He was voted on as the DH, and they put him on the roster. The manager picks the the pitchers, but put him on there as a pitcher. So I think unless he gets hurt or there's rain, we will see him bet and we will see him pitch in the All Star game, and that is that's that's great. Frankly, there's always been this, been this part of me that why aren't pitchers better batters, but mm-hmm. it's just the way it is. I've just come to accept that over the years, and now someone is actually doing what I always thought could be done. You know, it all levels uh, up to probably, well, even in, in, to some extent in college, the pitchers are probably the best athlete on the team. Certainly at the lower youth levels, the pitcher is, and they're the, they're the monsters with the bat, too. And then we get this notion that they're not supposed to hit. And if they hit, they're not supposed to hit well. And it becomes accepted, and it's it's unfortunate. You know, if you, if you go back and look, a number of pitchers would be used in the old days, and I'm not talking about that long ago, as pinch hitters. You know, Bob Gibson... Uh, Don Newcomb was, a, was an extraordinary pitch hitter, um, and and uh, you know that it'd be nice to have that again. And I, I noticed um, several times lately, uh, pitchers have been put into pinch run. Uh, the Dodgers, in particular, Dave Roberts, um, but uh, he he's used to pitcher a number of times as a pinch runner. Um, I think it's good for the game, and as you know, I detest the designated hitter. Um, so, uh, I'm, I'm ecstatic over all that. All right. Well, we'll talk baseball next week then. And I noticed, um, Michael Avenatti got sentenced today. Two and um, a half years. Yeah. Two and a half years. Um, Trying to extort money out of Nike. That's a, that's a nice little pop. Two and a half years for a lawyer, a former lawyer. I guess he's not a lawyer anymore. Um, or, and as I understand it, there are other charges that are still pending in California. State charges, right? right? I don't know if they're state or federal, so I know he's facing other charges. I see. Um, I guess it's Pfizer is is trying to get approval for yet another. Um, is it Pfizer? Uh, it another, is Pfizer. Yes, um, and that was not good news tonight. COVID nineteen uh, dose, and tell me why it wasn't good news. Well, because I had the Pfizer vaccine. Oh. <laughs> I, and they're suggesting a third shot because of the Delta variant or other potential variants. And um, so that's not good news for me. I guess if uh, if someone had the uh, someone, I, don't, I won't name any person, but if someone had the, you know, one shot vaccine, they don't have to worry about it. Yeah, but, um, you know, they don't like the one shot vaccine. Um, did you see the uh, the story? I saw it this morning about um whether or not the Biden administration's plan to go door to door offering the vaccine, you know, the, the fallout from that. But there was a story that I saw this morning that with regard to whether or not forcing vaccines on people would violate 
the um, the Nuremberg uh, rules, I think they're called, where in response to what the Germans did or Nazis did during the war, uh, medical experiments and so forth, they, they, they reiterated that consent has to be freely given uh, by a patient before procedures or, or can be can be administered um, uh, or, or performed. Um, and there's some controversy, uh, I guess, uh, some folks saying that forcing the COVID-19 vaccine would um, would violate uh, the Nuremberg rules. Did you see that? I did not see that. that. This is an interesting question, though, which has come up in the employment law context and whether employers can require the vaccination, because none of these vaccines are approved. They have emergency use authorization. Basically, the companies say we've done some testing. You know, it seems to have some efficacy and, you know, it's an emergency. So let us use it. So the government said, yes, we're going to try to get this thing out there to the public. Uh, But none of them are approved. There are no longitudinal studies. No one knows how safe they are. So a question is, can employers require it? And the uh, EEOC recently gave out guidance and said employers can require it. So that's a controversial topic out there in the employment law world. Now, I've not heard this piece about the Nuremberg Convention. That uh, that's interesting. Um, You know, see what happens with that. And the DOD has taken the position that military members can't be made to take the vaccine for the very reason that you mentioned. That is, it's not been officially and formally approved by the FDA. There's the emergency use authorization. And there were some news generated uh, last week uh, with regard to that and some efforts uh, perhaps to require service personnel to, to, to get the shots. And the argument in, in support of that was, well, you, you required service personnel to get other vaccines, including Such anthrax, as anthrax. Um, and uh, you know, flu shots and all that. But those have been fully uh, vetted and, and approved by the FDA, whereas this one hasn't. Uh, so that's it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, but those right, are those are kind else? of what I what I have seen as being potential hot topics. But who knows what's going to happen in the next few days? Well, who knows? I mean, I'm continuing to watch these culture wars going on, especially over CRT and school boards. And, you know, am I wrong or did AFT used to be the more conservative of the the two teachers unions back in the 80s? Um, That was my impression. Now they're battling with the NEA to see who's going to take the the furthest left position. Can we say race to the bottom? Race to the bottom. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, that's what I'm watching this week. Well, thanks for tuning in for another episode of the Let's Think About That podcast. You can contact us at comments at letsthinkpodcast.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please click subscribe on your podcast provider and leave us a review.